0: Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to The Astrology Podcast. This is uh, episode 252, and today I'll be talking with astrologer Nina Griffin about what is the birth chart of the United States. Uh, So today is Sunday, April 26, 2020, starting at 4.51 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. And uh, hey, Nina, welcome back to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here, Chris.
0: Yeah, this is uh, an episode we've been talking about doing for a few months now, and I'm glad that we finally got a chance to do it. And you put a lot of work and research into this topic, and it's a really big one. So we've got a lot to cover today, um, but I think it should be a good episode to finally have out there.
1: Agreed. Very excited about this.
0: All right. So part of the genesis of this episode is just one, as I've been sick, uh, obviously a lot of major events have been happening in the world, and I wanted to start getting back to the podcast now that I'm getting better. But it seemed like it was not a good time to do lighthearted episodes, but instead there was like some weighty world events going on right now. So, I wanted to do a weighty episode on a major topic that's sort of relevant to large groups of people. And one of the major discussion topics and debate topics that frequently comes up in the astrological community when you start talking about mundane astrology is what is the true birth chart of the United States? And while it seems like that should be like an easy answer, it's actually a lot more complicated than one would think, I I think, right? That's a fair statement to make.
1: I think, if anything, it's an understatement, Chris.
0: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yes. So this is one of those things where there's been a lot of debates for a very long time about what is the true birth chart of the United States. We're going to sort through all of that today. We're not going to give you a singular specific answer, but instead we're going to focus on outlining what is the problem and what are some of the different birth charts of the United States that people have chosen or worked with historically or still used today, and what is the background behind that and which ones have what going for them in terms of why you would choose one chart over another. So in order to start though, we have to give, since both of us are into traditional astrology, a little bit of a traditional backdrop in terms of how astrologers historically have used astrology to study world events. And when you go pretty far back, it doesn't actually you don't end up using birth charts of countries, but instead there were other approaches to mundane astrology back in the day, right?
1: Yes, you, that that is definitely true. So if you go back far enough, and I would say that you pretty much have to go back to Ptolemy, who wrote about this in the second book of his Tetra Biblos. And he really, he assigns certain signs to regions. It's even hard to say that it's assigned to countries because kind of nation states as we know them today really didn't exist in his time. But, you know, he might assign a certain um, sign to Germania or the Germanic tribes, which obviously covers a very amorphous and potentially large piece of land. And uh, similarly, you know, you do see that a lot more in the old texts where entire regions or entire, you can think of them as bands really, are associated with certain signs.
0: Okay, so they would a- apply the signs of the zodiac to different countries or different regions and give them yeah. different qualities. There were also different techniques for studying in mundane astrology for studying things like lunations or ingress charts, which you've done a lot of work with.
1: That's right, I have certainly on the practical level. But if again, if you go back before the idea of the national chart, which we'll get to in a second. You see, really what people were using is they were looking at lunations, they were looking at eclipses, uh, important transits or configurations, uh, certainly ingresses. And these particular ones were these particular types of charts were, I think, useful in a lot of ways. But it becomes a little bit difficult because if you have capital cities, so that you might set these charts for a capital city of a country or of a region or kingdom. Um, if they're pretty close together, as many European cities often are, you might not really see much of a difference between those charts at all. Um, So it becomes a little bit difficult to distinguish between events occurring in in neighboring neighboring countries or kingdoms.
0: Right, because those charts, for example, the Aries Ingress, which is like the start of the astrological new year, is just a chart set for the moment that the Sun moves into the tropical sign of Aries. Um, in that location, in a specific city, let's say in a given year, and that's supposed to give you some forecast for the year. But your point is that, especially in Europe, with cities so close together, those charts aren't going to vary that much um, from city to city.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, and it's, okay. it is a yeah, and that can be a predictive challenge, as you can imagine.
0: Right. Definitely. So, as I was thinking about this historically, the probably earliest precedent then for this issue about the the U.S. birth chart is eventually they did astrologers through electional and inceptional astrology did occasionally cast charts for the founding of cities. So, for example, the most famous one was the founding of Baghdad Mm -hmm. um, in the seventh or eighth century, which was uh, the foundation was picked by a group of astrologers who the king got together and said pick an auspicious date for me to found the what will become the capital of my new empire. And then they picked the most auspicious date that they did and that became Baghdad, which became an intellectual hub for several centuries. Um, so we have instances like that where you have like a singular chart for a city which becomes even the capital. Or there were early attempts by earlier Roman astrologers to sometimes come up with a chart for Rome or a birth chart for Constantinople but often these cities were founded so far in the distant past that there weren't good historical records so they would have to rely on or resort to rectification in order to try to speculate what the founding chart of the c- city must have been
1: that's right and i think the operative word there is speculation uh you know a lot of these cities unlike baghdad which was very conveniently and and thoughtfully for astrologers founded at a certain moment most mm-hmm. cities are thought to have just grown up from settlements or from very ancient times, so it would actually be difficult to even find a moment, you know, that it really began. So right. uh, yes, yes. Well, well which I, is I funny agree. in the yeah. case of
0: Rome, because when you see the astrologer's discussion of that, like Rome has this <laughs> quasi-mythological like yes. story about being founded by like Romulus and Remus, right, who we're, right. we're, were supposedly raised by wolves, and so they're trying to factor in like <laughs> things like that into their rectification, and yeah. it gets a little little dicey.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and you have to wonder like if they were really taking it that seriously, but they must have. I mean, they put a lot of work into it.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um so that sets up a precedent where there was historical precedent for both astrologers looking for sometimes singular charts for the inception or the beginning of something major like a city under the premise that that chart would tell you something about the history and the future of whatever was founded or started at that time, which is the basic principle of electional astrology. But also, it sets up a premise where astrologers sometimes so desperately want to find that singular chart for something that they can sometimes have to resort to rectification to try to infer or speculate what the founding must have been based on astrological principles. But that all the astrologers know that that rectification is inherently speculative on some level and therefore not always 100%.
1: That's exactly right. So then it becomes more of a, a you know an issue of belief and how much you want to believe a particular chart, you know, and then of course you can get all these competing Rectifications and and so yeah,
0: <laughs> right. Which which everyone's familiar with, especially from natal astrology, with like the birth charts of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if a birth time is not known or if there is yeah. conflicting birth times, like as like I don't know. Recently, for example, the controversy surrounding Hillary Clinton's birth time, but even other celebrities like Michael Jackson or other people like that. There is many different competing speculations um, in natal astrology, but here it's just being applied in a mundane context.
1: That's that's so, exactly right.
0: So one of the points that you made in our outline as we were preparing for this, and I wanted to say most of this outline was compiled by you and you did like an amazing job compiling our discussion today. So I just wanted to give you credit for that oh, at the you. start of this because I've been still kind of low energy. But one of the points that you made is that in the 20th century, it, there, we saw a real shift in emphasis towards natal astrology. And that's part of also what sets up this issue as well as just the emphasis that modern astrologers have on natal astrology, right?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, if you think about it and, you know, as a historian of astrology, I think you can probably confirm this is once you get into the 20th century, there starts to be this trend where natal astrology is the dominant form of astrology and for many astrologers it's like it's almost the only valid form. You know, we move away from horary, we move away from even mundane in a lot of cases. And so really, the natal chart becomes primary and dominant in a way that historically, it was just one of your many you know, subfields of astrology. But in the 20th, it really does seem to take a certain precedence.
0: Sure. So that would be as opposed to or as compared, contrasted with, let's say, somebody like William Lilly who writes his um, introduction to astrology and he does like introductory concepts and then immediately jumps into horary and then does natal astrology after that. That's right. So showing a, a clear sort of preference for horary, whereas that shifts in natal astrology is typically in 20th century and early 21st century astrology what people are exposed to first and primarily.
1: That's exactly right, and so I think there is the tendency once you start looking at the world that way to you know essentially look for natal charts of countries as being the predominant method and and kind of the holy grail of of prediction.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And that um, carries with it some other shifts, such as the focus on timing techniques like transits and um, progressions, especially secondary progressions, as applied to those birth charts. But then that means you really you need a really well timed natal chart in order to use timing techniques like that.
1: That's exactly right. So it, it carries with it some dangers when it comes to nations and cities.
0: Sure. So yeah. in order to be able to make predictions about like a nation or a city you you have to have um, a well-timed chart for that nation. Otherwise, your timing could be off by a year or, or 10 years or 100 years. Precisely. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, but the issue that we come back to then is just like in ancient times, in many cases, the original national charts for different countries are either impossible to obtain or there becomes a question about um, when is a nation officially born? Because sometimes there can be different symbolic moments of origin that could be valid or useful or could compete for sort of uh, preeminence.
1: That's Yeah, that's exactly right. And you see it, we'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. But you do see that because if you think about it, in the life of a nation, however you define that, there may be many significant events, right? There often isn't just one, but there could be quite a few um especially in more modern times you have different republics different governments so you have all these different competing options and so what you see is often you get kind of a smorgasbord of options as an astrologer which chart speaks most to you maybe you've done a little bit of back testing to see which seems to match events but it's uh, in any case i think any astrologer today would recognize that you know all these charts are just kind of one in a chain of events right so <clears throat> It's really, you know, in this long lifespan. So sometimes people look for the one true birth, but even then, I I have seen astrologers say, okay, you know, the division of this country in in 1939 is really the chart that works, even though there have been subsequent uh, important events since then, things like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it really comes back to natal astrology and just how much emphasis we put on, because at least with natal astrology, there is a definitive moment of like a one minute. You're still like a fetus on some level. At another minute, you're suddenly uh, have been separated from your mother's body and are like an independent living entity. And although there's some like there can be some gap there where there's some question about when exactly is the exact moment of birth, it's still in like a range of time where there's a very clear demarcation. And while sometimes there have historically been questions about, well, why do astrologers use the moment of birth instead of, let's say, the moment of conception? And sometimes astrologers have experimented with conception charts for different reasons. Um, natal astrology and the clear-cut nature of natal astrology often makes astrologers want there to be something similar when it comes to studying other things like the birth of a country.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point. And you know, one of the things that seems to distinguish these key charts one from another or the ones that seem to be most popular and popularly used are ones where there is a transfer or transition of power or the the bestowing of legitimacy on a person or a group as as leaders or as the legitimate government now again you know in the life of a nation this usually happens many times and so it's uh, like i said people do have to make some decision about which chart they want to use but it may not be the same one for all people working with the chart for for that nation.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that's funny about some of the older countries like countries in Europe is questions about like when do you even pick? You have so many options because their history goes so far back like hundreds and hundreds of years that there can be much larger debates about what to go with just because you have more significant moments of origin to work with all the way up until modern times but that's where the united states almost presents an interesting and unique case because as a country it's still relatively new and its sort of origins are a little bit more distinctive in some instances than other countries as a result of that so you almost do have a more clear-cut starting time frame to to start with or to work with
1: yeah, that's that's a great point. And I mean obviously the United States is interesting because it's a major country, you know, it's a major international player, so people study it much more than, you know, I don't know, the the chart for Luxembourg or something. But it's um, you know, one of the things about it just like you said, really all the countries in the Americas you can say have been founded in the last several hundred years, right? Whether you start from colonization or from the moment of independence, however you want to begin. Mm-hmm. Um this is one of those things where um, you know, it's sort of very tantalizing to astrologers because it is during recorded history, and so there should be a, a time chart that, at least in theory, could be obtainable if we only find the right uh, diary or document that that gives that exact time.
0: Right, and it's interesting because it's in a more recent, within the past 300, 400 years. So it's in a period of more well-documented history where some of the primary source documents that you have to work with still exist or can be read in like their original language relatively easily. Like you don't have to learn Latin or like ancient Greek in order to go back and reconstruct the birth chart of the US. And it's also something that a lot of just modern mainstream historians have spent a lot of time on. So there's plenty of source material to draw on if you should want to investigate this question thoroughly.
1: Exactly, and, as you just said, secondary material too, which we'll get mm-hmm. into when we talk about the u s chart specifically,
0: right, yeah, all right, so um, why don't we get into this question then? So the question is, what is the birth chart of the United States? Um, the answer is not as simple as it seems. uh, most astrologers do tend to focus on July fourth seventeen seventy six and that's part of the reason for that is because that's usually celebrated at each year. In the United States is Independence Day to commemorate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So there's sort of like a clear social thing that happens that's kind of built into every astrologer. Every astrologer lives in the United States' mind where you can remember that being like a major holiday that happens every year on July 4th, and it's usually treated as if that is the birthday of the United States. So as a result of that, most astrologers tend to focus on July 4th, 1776 as the birth date, and then there just becomes a, a debate about what time exactly and what ascendant or rising sign to use. But there's also some astrologers that use or, or argue for different dates as being the true birth date and say that July 4th, 1776 is not necessarily the true Chart or date that should be used for the birth chart of the U.S.
1: That's right. You can think of it as kind of your, you know, your your trump card or something, right? You have all these people arguing about what time is correct for July 4th, and then somebody else comes in and says, "Actually, guys, it's not even July 4th." You know, it's sort of your power move.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and it gets a little bit crazy. I mean, I'm trying to think of analogies because there's other things like this in the astrological community. I mean, house division is is something that a lot of there's a lot of major debates about, obviously. But I'm trying to think of something that's even more of a parallel. Sometimes, like there's debates about the start of the age of Aquarius, and that can be kind of a similar speculative that's right. thing. That's right. Are there any other major debates like that? that, that you can think yeah, of?
1: gosh. Well, I mean, you can certainly go back uh, historically to you know, in, in the old days, people were looking for the the date of the flood. Or the date of Jesus Christ's birth. The birth birth date of Jesus.
0: Yeah, that's a big one.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are definitely. Yeah, I I think this is a hobby for astrologers and has been for quite some time.
0: Yeah, that's a really good one. The birth chart of Jesus is probably historically the other major, Mm -hmm. even more longstanding speculative attempt to rectify a chart for a major event that was thought to have happened and to like pick out a specific, not just date, but exact time.
1: Precisely, yes.
0: All right. so astrologers have been engaging in this for a long time now um, and will continue to do so. So back to the chart of the United States, we've broken down those two main categories. Um, What we're gonna do now is we're going to go through and talk about a bunch of the different specific charts and specific dates. Do you want to start with talking about the July 4th charts or do you want to, to build up to that first using the ones that are outside of that range?
1: I'm thinking let's maybe build up to it. And and okay. I just want to make sure because you know if if people are are watching or listening to this episode who like to experiment with different charts, these mm-hmm. are all ones that have been put forward with, you know, reasonably decent cases for them being working charts or operative charts. So mm-hmm. it might be that people might want to just kind of try them out, and you know, and, and we work our way up to that point.
0: Okay, sounds good. So, right. what is the earliest chart that you found in your research that's been put forward as a possible chart for the United States?
1: So the earliest one that I know of was uh, published by Mark Penfield, and this is the chart of the first permanent settlement in America. And the chart that that Mark Penfield shows is set for September eighteenth, fifteen sixty five, in Saint Augustine, Florida. And he sources it to the American Federation of Astrologers, but I don't know kind of the the original genesis of this particular chart. Um, It's an interesting chart because it actually has Uranus and Sagittarius on the Ascendant. So Sagittarius rising, which becomes important later. Um, And and the Ascendant is at nine Sag. Um, Jupiter uh, conjoins actually the sun in Virgo on the Midheaven and the moon is in Pisces. So lots of mutable signs operative in that chart.
0: Okay. And what's the rising sun again?
1: Sagittarius, nine degrees of Sag.
0: Okay. Um, so let me go ahead and share that for those that are watching the video version of this episode. Does that look right? September 8th, 1565?
1: It, it actually should have nine degrees of Sagittarius rising. I'm not sure.
0: Okay, let me um, adjust if, that. There hopefully. we
1: go. Yeah, it should be... Um, that's right.
0: Is that right? Because there's like the old-school, new-school change, Yeah. and sometimes that gets messed up when I animate the chart.
1: Yep, let's take a quick look at that. Yep, that looks right.
0: Okay. Um, So that's this chart. Like you were saying, Sagittarius rising, Jupiter, Sun conjunction up in Virgo, Sun-Mercury conjunction in Libra over in the 11th house, and so on and so forth. So Mm -hmm. Mars in Gemini, which is kind of interesting because that is what some of the later charts share
1: that's right. it mirrors a lot of some of the popular uh, July 4th charts so
0: right or all okay of them, so, actually. <laughs> so that's the earliest but this is not something that a lot of people have embraced necessarily. It's just one of the ones that you found where where it's the earliest like one yeah the ear- earliest date okay, got it that's right
1: All right so after that another one that I like symbolically just in terms of the event is the Pilgrim's Landing at Plymouth Rock. Which is an important part in the American myth of settlement. You know, it's just, it's an important period, moment. And this chart is set for December 21st, 1620, and 6 a.m. in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And it should have Sagittarius rising, though I don't have the degree in front of me, but it has Moon and Sag as well with the December sun. December.
0: Thirty-first, uh, 21st, 21st. Uh, 21st, 21st.
1: 1620. twenty-first, twenty-first. twenty-first, sixteen twenty, and that's six a.m. in Plymouth, Massachusetts.
0: There it is. Can you see? Yes. Is the chart coming up. Okay. Yep, and looks good. All right. So this is um, when the Pilgrims landed on, at Plymouth Rock. Mm-hmm. Got it.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Again, emphasis on Sagittarius and Gemini, which again we see in future charts.
0: Okay. And this one comes from Nick Campion's Book of World Horoscopes. That's right. That's right. Okay. And was that a major source for you in compiling some of this? Because I know Nick has done a lot of work especially yeah, it in, was. La- in that book.
1: It was. It's certainly not the only one, but um it definitely was important.
0: Okay. So when we're talking about some of these earlier charts, when we're talking about like the landing of so the, the previous one was the first permanent settlement in America. This is the first group of sort of religious group that's coming over that ends up founding it, which is very um, notable later and which is still talked about a lot. So, some of these are symbolically important in term of, terms of like the founding of the colonies, essentially.
1: Precisely. Yes.
0: Okay. Got All it. All
1: right. Shall we move on? Yeah. Let's All keep right. going. So then the Boston Tea Party, which again, very important moment in American history and in the American conception of itself as rebellious. And uh, this is set for December 16th, 1773. And this is also from Nick Campion, who notes that it has an unverified time of 5.45 PM, but that just comes from astrological sources rather than historic ones. So I'm not sure how reliable that time is from a historic perspective.
0: Right, because sometimes it's like there are time ranges that were noted in historical sources, but other times we don't know the time. We just know a date. And sometimes some astrologer will rectify it to some specific time for various miscellaneous reasons, and that'll become the chart, but we often don't know the actual time.
1: That's right. That's what tends to stick, but we may not know how they got there.
0: Sure. Okay, so that's funny. So the Boston Tea Party happened under a, a Mercury retrograde conjunct Mars at four degrees of Capricorn.
1: <laughs> yes, that, that seems okay. appropriate in some way.
0: Or, yeah, there's some, a- some angry Bostoners throwing tea in, a, in the water. <laughs> in the harbor. That sounds, yeah. yeah, that sounds pretty good.
1: <laughs> All right, so let me. There um, we go. Okay. So then, after that, we get to the first congress or the first meeting of, of the back then still the colonists, and this is set for September fifth, seventeen seventy four, at ten a.m. in Philadelphia, and this chart has Scorpio rising, with the moon and the sun conjunct in Virgo.
0: Okay, so so at this point we're getting to the the range of the the colonies the 13 colonies have been around for a while and now there's growing tensions between the colonies and um and England and the king and eventually it starts these tensions start leading towards towards war
1: yes that's exactly right okay so we're getting so- as you said in the range of, of the American Revolution
0: yeah, and so this is the first Continental Congress. So this is when the first the colonies first started to get together to initiate that to initiate the rebellion. That's right. Okay.
1: All right. Okay, so then and this I can see how this could be interesting as a moment. This is the start of the Revolutionary War. And it would be early on the day of April 19th, 1775. This would be the Battle of Lexington. And it's thought that the battle started around five AM, which would put Aries on the ascendant with the sun there as well, and the moon in Sagittarius.
0: Okay. So this was the first battle of the Revolutionary War?
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. And Lexington is going to be your um location.
0: Oh right. I haven't changed location. All right, I'm just doing approximate sort of charts here as we're going through this so it's it's late Aries rising with the sun at 29 degrees of Aries correct okay that's fine okay so revolutionary war starts but that's one of the things that's interesting just chronologically as I was refreshing myself on all of my like American history yeah. 101 is that the war like the rebellion had already started before they actually made the declaration of independence and all of that the declaration actually came like a year later exactly Once tensions had already erupted into like actual battles taking place,
1: right? You would almost think it should go the other way, but sometimes battles just happen. So they they went with it. Yeah.
0: Well, and that was when I was like rewatching a documentary in preparation for this. That was the um, thing that the historian really emphasized was that up until this point, it was like the. Colonies having like a temporary like spat over taxes and like like other things like that, but then suddenly when um they signed the Declaration of Independence and and produced that and and sent it out, that was a real declaration that they were had a problem with the king in particular and were separating themselves from the king's empire. Yes. Okay. So um this is the. So, so we're looking right now at the start of the Revolutionary War on April 19th, 1775, and then uh, a couple months a few months after that there was an actual actual declaration of war in July, right?
1: Correct. And so Congress declared war July 6th, 1775. So interestingly, almost exactly a year before the most commonly used date July 4th, 1776. Mm-hmm. And this one was uh, very heavily advocated by the astrologer Helen Boyd. Who used uh, an 11 a.m. chart? So perhaps you want to pull that up. And I think there's some interesting comments uh, that you made, Chris, in our outline about zodiacal releasing, if you wanted to um, talk to that a little bit.
0: Yeah. So this is, um, and what was the location for that again?
1: You know, that's a good question. I, I think Philadelphia would be,
0: um, is would be corner. fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it has a, it's, this is a Libra rising chart. It's one of the Libra rising charts, right? Yes. Okay. So I only, I'm only i only familiar with this chart because the guy who was in one of my recent podcast episodes, Alan White, was a big fan of this mm-hmm. chart um, and called it the War Chart or the Declaration of War Chart. And um, he had a whole lecture on that that I'll see if I can find at some oh, point. Yeah. But one of the reasons that he tried to advocate for it or that he argued for it from a Hellenistic perspective is he said, if you did zodiac releasing with this chart, that Um, there was a loosing of the bond on level 1 which occurred around the time of the September 11th uh, attacks in 2001. So normally a level 1 loosing of the bond isn't possible for humans because you can only have a loosing of the bond on level 2 or 3 or 4 because it would take too long, longer than the duration of a human life to have one on level 1 where the periods can last for decades before it moves all the way around the zodiac. But for something like a country that's had um, been around for a few centuries, you can actually have a loosing of the bond theoretically if zodiac releasing can be applied to inception charts in that way. So, anyways, um I never had any I don't have any real like attachment necessarily, but it was an interesting mm-hmm. speculation that Alan always had, and and one of the reasons why he argued for this being um, a chart that should be paid attention to.
1: I'd be interested to know, Chris. Um it doesn't sound like maybe you tried it, but I do wonder if zodiacal releasing can be applied to inception charts rather than just natal charts. It sounds like maybe sure. Alan had worked with it. Um, I'd be, you know, maybe there's some room for experimentation there.
0: Uh yeah, there's definitely room for experimentation. I mean, I know you can use perfections. The only thing with zodiac releasing is usually it's better for long-term things. And oftentimes mm-hmm. inceptions and elections can tend to be for shorter term things, so that I haven't studied it in the same way that I've studied like longer lives yeah. of individuals. And it's also so much more dependent on having an exact birth time mm-hmm. because zodiac releasing is based on the lots that if there's any questions surrounding the birth time, then it's It's way almost, off. Yeah, yeah, it's way off and it's almost not even worth it to try at all. And that's one of the issues I often run into wanting to apply it to inception charts, but not always having a very good, like solid, reliable time to work with for inceptions.
1: That makes sense. Thank you. That's, that's, that's quite interesting.
0: Yeah. So this is so this is when we start getting into the realm, though, of some charts that have been advocated by, let's say, more astrologers or where specific astrologers like you said, the astrologer Helen Boyd didn't make an entire career, but she's partially known for having advocated this chart.
1: That's correct.
0: Okay. So we're getting into the realm of, yeah, some astrologers heavily advocating for certain charts and, and sometimes making their career out of it or becoming well-known for having advocated a specific chart?
1: Precisely, yes. So I think we're getting into July 1776 now. So the the one that I think came from Gary Lawrenson is uh, one of the ones he suggested is July 1st, 1776. And this is set for 7.08 PM, which is probably the most specific time that I've so far seen on our list. Um, and this is the first Yes, majority vote for independence, where nine of the delegates or nine of the colonies voted yes, two voted no, and then two abstained. Do you want to talk about how Gary arrived or how historians have arrived at this very precise time of seven o eight p
0: m um, yeah, I mean, with Gary, he had written a series when I said when I announced that you and I were researching this episode um and he was referred to us by. I think Jen Zart mentioned that he was somebody that had researched this topic a lot, and he wrote a series of like Facebook posts for us where he outlined different research he had done and into the different dates and what time ranges had good historical sourcing. And he was often drawing on, it sounds like, firsthand accounts of people like John Adams um, or other people that were around at the time who sometimes noted when the Continental Congress started that day or when they broke for lunch or when they adjourned for the evening and other things like that, which I think in some instances gave gave him ranges of let's say an hour or two that it must have started at 10 a.m. but then it ended by 12 p.m. and then sometimes he's adjusted it to come up with a specific time. Um, so we don't always know necessarily the specific time, but sometimes we know ranges for some of these dates due to just first hand documentation at the time.
1: No, that makes sense. All right. So that's that's the July 1st chart right there.
0: Yeah. So and just historically, so this is the second Continental Congress. This is when they're starting to get together to make the Declaration of Independence, to officially have the 13 colonies announce that they're basically like separating from the the king and separating from England and setting up a new country. And this is the first vote that happened for that. But one of the things that's funny is uh that Gary notes that Mercury was retrograde and they actually had to do a revote the very next day on July 2nd.
1: That seems that seems typical for Mercury retrograde.
0: Yeah, so I did want to mention though, so this, I guess Gary is, this is Gary, for whatever reason, this is Gary's preferred chart, which is July 1st, 1776 at 7.08 p.m. Uh, with Capricorn rising, Saturn exalted in Libra in the 10th whole sign house, Jupiter, the Sun, and Mercury are over in the seventh house in Cancer. Um, Venus has not quite moved into Cancer yet, it's at 29 degrees of Gemini. Along with Mars at 19 Gemini, Uranus at eight degrees of Gemini and Neptune at 22 uh, Virgo. So one of the things that I noticed that was interesting about this chart, and just about the time frame in general, that this would have been the day of a full moon uh, right there in Capricorn, so that this is like just after a full moon. and then we see the Continental Congress like getting together and issuing this very first vote, which seems kind of notable just in and of itself.
1: That's right. And it's interesting is that it's a full Moon, uh, very closely square Saturn in Libra. So there is this, you know, I can see how this could be a very, you know, powerful moment for breaking with an authority figure, perhaps the king or however you want to characterize that Saturn in Libra and his exaltation.
0: Yeah. And one of the things about this entire period and that we'll talk about eventually later maybe is with this range of dates, once you narrow it down, if you are narrowing it down or if you choose to narrow it down to this time frame in early July and go with one of those charts, then there's certain commonalities that all of the charts are going to share in terms of sign placements of certain planets. But one of the ones that I always thought was really cool about the founding of the United States that's true no matter what, if you use any of the July charts, is that the two classical outer planets, Jupiter and Saturn, are both located in their signs of exaltation, which is just really fascinating to me because that's you know a, a concept that had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years at that point, all the way at least since the first century BCE. But here, it just happens so happens that at the founding of this country, um, those two the two largest planets in the solar system happen to be in those two specific signs of the zodiac with Saturn exalted in Libra and Jupiter exalted in Cancer at that time.
1: Yes, and I think this is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but I think it's one of the reasons some people say, oh, the Founding Fathers were actually astrology practicing Freemasons uh, who elected this chart because it just seems so perfect in many ways.
0: Right. Yeah, where they would have waited or something to do that, which they probably didn't wait until this specific year and like (laughs) hold off the entire Revolutionary War. And it sounds like the war was already going by that point. Exactly. That is probably a subtopic that we should address at some point, which is some of the founding fathers were Freemasons Mm -hmm. or were involved in Freemasonry and questions surrounding to what extent that played any role in things that happened with the founding of the country. Questions about in the late 18th century, um, in the late in the 1770s, let's say, like how prominent was astrology at that time? Were there practicing astrologers? Was astrology incorporated into Freemasonry in any way? Or what is the plausibility of having anybody having used electional astrology in any real sense during that time frame?
1: Yeah, Um, go ahead.
0: I don't know the answer to most of those (laughs) questions, but they're questions probably worth worth asking.
1: For sure. It's sort of interesting. And I I think it was Nick Campion who says a little bit about this in, in his book of World Horoscopes, where he says Thomas Jefferson had, of course, an enormous collection of books and library of which three just three had to do with astrology. Mm. And then the thought was that if anybody would have known maybe how to cast a horoscope, it probably would have been someone like Ben Franklin. But then he didn't leave behind any astrological works other than a work where he denigrates astrology. So, you know, the circumstantial yeah. evidence isn't very strong that, that they were deep astrological practitioners or even believers for that matter.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ben Franklin is often mistakenly thought to have been an astrologer to advocated astrology, but that's because people will just see this little quote that goes around in like memes from Benjamin Franklin, like pro astrology memes where it sounds like a really positive quote, But they don't realize that he's writing it under the pseudonym of somebody he's mocking. And that part of his thing was writing like satirical articles. (laughs) And he actually did mock like other actual astrologers or almanac makers, sometimes very strongly or viciously.
1: That's right. Needs a sarcasm tag. Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's a whole separate thing unto itself. But don't. Be careful about sharing the like pro astrology Benjamin <laughs> Franklin memes because they're not necessarily as positive as you might right. think at first glance. Um, out of
1: context. Yep.
0: Yeah, out of context.
1: Yeah. All right. All so right. shall we get back to the charts?
0: Yeah. Okay. So this is the first vote, but then what happens? So Gary, let us know, and that Mercury was retrograde, so Mercury's at twenty-five Cancer on July first. Um, it looks like it only stationed retrograde 3.5 days earlier. So it actually literally just stationed um, as they were doing all of this. And then the next day they had to do some sort of revote, right?
1: That's that's exactly right. If you want to share your screen and show that. So Great. that that second vote was July 2nd, 1776. Um, it seems like the time is uncertain, but, uh, but Gary told us that it was between 11am and noon. And the reason they took the second vote was to accommodate Delaware because they had to abstain on the first vote. They were missing a delegate who didn't get there until July 2nd. So the second vote didn't really change things. It just became more official because they had everyone present. And that was 12 were voting for yes and one abstained. And uh, John Adams gave an 11th hour of the morning for the second vote, July 2nd. So I'm assuming that's Gary's source. Um, Speaking of John Adams, I also want to share this sort of deeply historically ironic quote. He wrote to his wife about July 2nd. He said, this day will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I believe that it will be celebrated as the great anniversary, end quote. So it's, uh, you know, clearly that is not when we let off fireworks. That is not when we have our national celebration. And I would venture to say most people aren't aware of the significance of July 2nd unless they spent some time studying uh, the American revolutionary history. So despite John Adams' belief in this as a deeply symbolic and important moment, it just doesn't seem to have captured the the attention of the public the way that July 4th did.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's really important though, because that means there are some astrologers that could make like a legitimate case that this is here we have like the personal writings of one of the founders of the country. And he believed that this was the moment that the country truly began was when the Continental Congress issued this vote saying that we are going to set up our own separate country and we are now independent from um, from anything else.
1: Exactly. So that would be an interesting chart to experiment with. Certainly, like I said, that's probably as close as we get to some of the, the original founding fathers' writings on what they thought was the significant moment, which I think has Weight and and value.
0: Right. So it's interesting that in this chart, um, Venus has switched over from its position the previous day at 29 Gemini. It switched over to zero degrees of Cancer. And between 11 and 12 a.m., between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. on that day, the ascendant switched from Virgo to Libra. So you've either got a Virgo ascendant or you've got a Libra ascendant. It looks like it switched over at about a quarter after the hour. So if it's, let's say, Libra rising, then you've got a Libra rising chart with Saturn exalted in uh, Libra in the first house, and then Venus is up in Cancer around the degree of the Midheaven in the 10th whole sign house, possibly ninth quadrant house, uh, along with the rest of the planets Jupiter and the Sun and Mercury. And they're opposing the Moon, which is down in Capricorn uh, at this time, actually in a relatively close conjunction with Pluto. Uh, the moon being at twenty four Capricorn and Pluto being at twenty seven.
1: Right. So starting to get interesting. All right. Yeah.
0: Okay. So mm-hmm. this is the July second chart. Um, so that finally brings us right. I think that that's the final other one before July fourth, and then we finally come to the July fourth charts. That's right. The main event.
1: <clears throat> so July fourth. Now this is the day that the wording of the Declaration of Independence was was finally agreed.
0: Okay, So this is when, yeah, they finally officially declared it. They wrote the document, and that's the document that everybody in the US. like learns about in school and that much um, attention is paid towards, and this is the date that's usually treated as the birthday of the country.
1: Exactly. And I wonder if even before getting into the specific times, it's worth talking about the prevalence of the Sagittarius and Gemini risings chart, at least in the 20th and 21st centuries. I don't know if you had some comments about that, Chris, because it does seem like those are the two signs that that seem to have some pretty strong advocates.
0: Yeah, so historically there's been two charts, two times, two rising signs that have primarily been advocated by astrologers. Um, weirdly, both of them have historical issues where they almost both could be. There's arguments where neither one in varying degrees could be historically possible if you try to go with the main sources or just with like what time of the night it was when that must have taken place. So there's issues surrounding both of them, but historically, um, for the past century or so, especially astrologers have usually come down in like one camp or another on this issue with it either being a Gemini rising chart or a Sagittarius rising chart.
1: Yes, and I think that's that's quite fascinating. So we'll just start chronologically. And mm-hmm.
0: Could we tra- start with yeah. Sibley first just because yeah. historically that was the first? Absolutely. Okay. So the Sibley chart, there's a lot of issues with the Sibley chart, but the Sibley <laughs> chart was the first instance of some astrological publication publishing like a a birth chart for the United States, right?
1: Yes. So Ebenezer Sibley was a Freemason living in England, and he published a chart for the United States in 1787. And it's thought that this is probably the first national chart, you know, in the West at least that has been really used and published and advocated for. So there is a it is important from a historical perspective in the history of astrology as well as what it signifies.
0: Right. So this is like 10 years after the Declaration of Independence. And astrology is in kind of a low point at this point. Like astrology is not super popular at this point in history in the UK. It had fallen out of favour towards the end of the 17th century in Europe and was in kind of a low point. So even Sibley's publication of astrology texts at that time was a little bit of a historical oddity in some sense or an outlier.
1: That's right. And I'll, I'll try to explain, go through all the inconsistencies in the chart. So forgive me if I get it wrong, but there are just so many <laughs> that I'll try to, try to represent them accurately. So stop me if I don't have it. So the okay. chart was set for 10, 10, you know, 10 PM and 10 minutes of London time, but it was set for Philadelphia, um, as the location. And also, the I think the the chart was actually calculated for 9:50 p.m. So I think the the uh, the chart said it was for 10:10 p.m., but in fact, it was calculated for 9:50 p.m. But then the planetary positions are actually set for 4:50 p.m. Uh, in London, and so the planets are set for local mean time, and then the house cusps are set for Greenwich mean time, which uh, differed by one hour at that moment. And so because of all these inconsistencies, you know, is it a chart in the US? Is it, ch- is it a chart set in London? Where are the planets? its It was criticized and has been as being kind of hopelessly confused because no matter where you set a real chart for whether it's Philadelphia or London, um, you, you wouldn't get exactly the same values for house cusps as well as for, for planetary positions.
0: Okay. So Yeah, so this is in the era like before computer programs. So somebody's calculating this chart by hand. 10 years later, they're focusing on July 4th, the day of the Declaration of Independence, and they have a specific time picked, but the location is set for London for some reason rather than the location being set for Philadelphia.
1: That's right. And maybe and one of the sort of after-the-fact rationalizations or speculations is that, you know, they, this is still, they're still part of England, whether that's an ideological position that the astrologer is taking or whatever else, you know, it's still sort of a colony. So why would you set it for them? Wouldn't you just set it for the capital of the, of the mother country?
0: Okay. What, what specific time should I set this for? Um, is it 4.50 PM, let's say hypothetically, in Philadelphia? Or do we, do we even know what time we should set it for for the Sibley chart?
1: What I've seen, uh, I think I've seen 1010, 10, well, that's 1010 10 PM for London, let's see, or 450. No, you're right. I think you've got it. I've seen Sibley set for 450, but also 510 PM. I'm not sure which is the canonical Sibley chart, if okay. such a thing even exists.
0: Um, I guess if he was setting it for 1010, 10, then let's say 510 for mm-hmm. this, which would give 12 Sagittarius rising.
1: Right, which I think is the most common ascendant I've seen for, for Sibley.
0: Oh yeah, okay, that makes yeah. sense because then that's the one where, as we were talking about earlier before we got on the call, before after 9/11, a lot of astrologers saw a Pluto Saturn opposition that was relatively close on September 11th, and it was somewhere around these degrees, and a number of astrologers took that to mean to be like conclusive proof for the Sibley chart after the fact.
1: Yes, that's right. I guess one comment on that was so Saturn and Pluto opposed each other three times uh, in two thousand or two thousand one and two thousand two, and the opposition occurred. The first two oppositions occurred at twelve Gemini and Sag, and the third one occurred at sixteen Sagittarius um, or sixteen Gemini and Sag, and that was in in early two thousand two. Um, but the, the thing that's kind of confounding here, that I think does not necessarily prove conclusively whether Sibley works or not, is that this chart, July fourth, has Uranus at eight Gemini, and it also has Mars at twenty one Gemini. And so you could also say that, you know, it, those those planets could just have been activated. Um, you don't really know that angles were the ones kind of doing, you know, doing the the heavy lifting, as it were.
0: Right. So let me show the chart just to demonstrate what we're talking better. Let me figure out how to do this. Um, let me animate a bi wheel with the Sibley chart. or actually no, I can just do a bi wheel with the September 11th chart. Okay, so here's for the v- people watching the video version, my apologies to people watching listening to the audio version. Sibley chart has 12 degree ascendant. And so it's like 1221, let's say, Sagittarius rising. And on September eleventh, Pluto was at 1238, Sagittarius. And it was opposite to Saturn at 1445, Gemini. Um, so that's basically it. It's like a lot of astrologers were like, oh, that must prove the Sibley chart when the attacks happened. And then immediately after that, people noticed that and were sort of looking for answers. But what what was the point that you were making about other transits surrounding this?
1: Right. So as you notice that we don't just have the Ascendant and Descendant in Gemini and Sag, we also have Uranus in Gemini and Mars in Gemini. And so that opposition triggers them as well. So you could technically be looking at a completely different Ascendant and Descendant with those planets still being activated by that opposition.
0: Right, and you said that there was three oppositions that happened that year between Pluto and Saturn, and they were a little bit earlier.
1: Correct. Correct. So you had ones in 2001, uh, both of which were at 12 degrees of their respective signs, and then the the last one in 2002 was at 16 degrees. So that would be well within orb of of Mars as well as Uranus.
0: Okay, got it. All right. Um, yeah. So and and also. Even though sometimes obviously we have major events, we have to be a little bit careful about like looking for easy solutions as well. And some of the, I, I don't know, I can't help but feeling like some of the just Pluto hitting the Ascendant stuff could be some of the overemphasis on Pluto, which I think is an important significator, but I don't think it's like the only significator in astrology that we should be paying attention to, but maybe one piece um, that could be an argument but that that can't be like the only argument for the sibley chart. That's right. All right, so let's go back to our is there anything else we need to say about the sibley chart that we haven't? I mean, did we give a general just overview of the placements especially for the the audio listeners?
1: You know, maybe you want to do that. I don't think we went through all of them exactly. So, that would be okay. good to, Yeah, go ahead. So
0: the, the sibley chart has 12 degrees of Sagittarius rising, um What's interesting, one of the things that's weird about the Sibley chart is that all of the the Cancer stellium of Venus, Jupiter, the Sun, and Mercury is in the 8th house. So for whatever reason, that's all 8th house stuff. The only angular planets, uh, at least by sign in the chart, you have Uranus hanging out over by the Descendant. And depending on the exact degree, it's either in the 6th quadrant house or it's in the 7th whole sign house. And you have Mars angular in the 7th whole sign house at 21 degrees of Gemini. Let's see Saturn is exalted at 14 degrees of Libra as in the other charts for this time period either in the 11th whole sign house or the 10th quadrant house since the midheaven is over at 1 degree of Libra let's see and the moon in this chart is at 27 degrees of Aquarius pretty much all of the all of the July 4th charts except if you get really late at night i think after 10 p.m. all of the July 4th charts have the moon in Aquarius somewhere in the, the later degrees of Aquarius so that would be that would be the Sibley chart. Also, Neptune and Virgo at twenty two degrees in the tenth whole sign house or the ninth quadrant house. Uh, yeah. So that's the overview of the Sibley chart. Are there any other things to say about that aside from its somewhat confused historical origins? Who have been the main proponents of this?
1: That's a good question. I feel like it's had a number. Um, certainly, um, Dane Rudger. It was to me is probably the most famous one. He rectified it just a smidgen. And Mm. I can talk to that a little bit, maybe now is the right moment. So he rectified it and he wrote an article in Zodiac Magazine in 1971, so quite a while ago, called The Riddle of the USA Horoscope. Mm. And um, so he advocates, although I think actually I take it back, I think he's using July 4th, 1775. I apologize. I thought that was a Sibley chart rectification, but I feel like that's not quite right. So I, I won't Talk more about that. We can get to it later.
0: Does it use Sagittarius Rising as It does. As it does. That's okay. why I thought
1: it was the same. It uses 13 Sagittarius Rising.
0: Okay. Well, uh, yeah, so it's still sort of an argument for like a Sagittarius Rising type mm. chart. Got it. Um, so that's okay. Um, I do know so that um, there have been a number of astrologers that have advocated Sibley. I feel like there was an uptick after September 11th mm-hmm. that a lot of astrologers were really compelled or, yeah. or found it persuasive. The Pluto argument about Pluto conjoining the Ascendant of the Sibley chart um, on the, uh, the day of September 11th as being persuasive, partially because that was the primary signature that most astrologers focused on as being like the 9-11 signature was the Pluto-Saturn opposition. And so if that's the main signature you're looking for, then people were gravitating towards the chart that hit that the closest as being like the one,
1: that's right, that's right, and of course, not to get too far off track, but Rob Hand wrote a very famous article for the Mount Astrologer well in advance about the Saturn and Pluto opposition, and so I think in some ways it had already been prefigured as maybe the key key configuration of, of that year. So as you say, people really focused on it um, to the exclusion of a lot of other factors.
0: Okay, um, yeah, and well, I think he was he's one of the ones that I, I feel like I remember saying that that helped to confirm the Sibley chart, so maybe he's part of the reason why more astrologers were sort of compelled to take the Sibley chart more seriously after that point. That's right. Whereas prior to that point, and that's maybe a nice segue into our other chart, prior to that point historically, it seemed like there were more arguments and more astrologers had used the literally the opposite chart, which is the Gemini rising chart, which also had a long history, but also some kind of weird history and, and rationale behind it.
1: Absolutely. So the the Gemini rising chart was set for around 2:15 a.m., which is as far as we know completely a, a historic in the sense that there is no documentation that the founding fathers who were present at the Declaration of Independence meeting had anything other than a full night's sleep. So we don't there's no reason to think they met that late or that anything significant happened at that time. Um, but the, as far as we can trace it back, the reason that this chart arose was Luke Broughton, if I'm saying his name correct correctly. Um, he was probably the best known and certainly the most vocal US astrologer of, of the mid-19th century. In 1861, when he was doing a, a newsletter, an astrological newsletter, said that Gemini ruled the US and the ingress of Uranus or Herschel, as it was known back then, into Gemini was when the revolution began. So for him, you know, the the ingress of Uranus into Gemini was very important. And so when Uranus came to the nine degrees of Gemini, the U.S. declared its independence. And he doesn't say it, as far as I know, but he seems to have assumed that the degree of Uranus uh, on July Fourth, seventeen seventy six, is the rising degree of the U.S. chart, and that's why we end up with a two fifteen. A uh, chart.
0: Okay. Yeah. So it looks like this is the chart where the person tried to put Uranus like right on the degree of the ascendant. So that at 215, the ascendant's at like seven degrees of Gemini and Uranus is at eight degrees of Gemini.
1: Correct. Correct. And I think, you know, that you have to recognize, right, that Americans, um, you know, it does feed into kind of their their perception of themselves as as mavericks, as revolutionaries. You know, so I think there is a certain uh, mythic appeal to having Uranus as you know, kind of the co-significator or or the planet that that inaugurates the, the start of the country.
0: Yeah, I was looking that up because that actually became then something that's become an important part of astrological lore and how astrologers conceptualize the planet Uranus in general. Now, a few centuries later, is that. Um, Uranus was discovered on March 13th, 1781, so just a few years after the Declaration of Independence and after the the revolution and after America became um, an independent country and broke away from uh, England. And so uh, as a result of that, astrologers developed a doctrine that whenever a new planet is discovered that whatever is going on in the world at the time often has Important symbolic meaning for whatever that planet is about. So that's one of the ways that Uranus came to be associated with things like revolutions.
1: Yes, I think that's that's quite right.
0: Okay, so Uranus gets associated with um, sort of the birth of the U.S. I mean, one point that's actually worth mentioning in favor of Luke Broughton is he was one of the more he's one of the most prominent astrologers of the 19th century. Of like the 1800s. And he actually predicted, I believe, the outbreak of the Civil War based on um, the Uranus return, the very first Uranus return, which ended up coinciding with like the outbreak of the Civil War, if I'm remembering correctly.
1: Yes, I think that's right. He, um, he was publishing his newsletter in the... I don't know when he began, but he definitely was publishing it in the early uh, 1860s. And he seems to have predicted it uh, pretty accurately, as you say, on the basis of Uranus returning to returning to Gemini.
0: Okay. And, and then weirdly, as people have noted then almost a century later, that when Uranus again re- returned back to Gemini in the 1940s, that was when the United States got involved in World War II. Correct. So historically, there have been these super important Turning points in U.S. history, both the Civil War as well as World War II or America's involvement in World War II during Uranus returns, whenever Uranus returns back to the sign of Gemini for some reason.
1: Yes. And I feel like you've had an episode about this on your podcast some years ago. I don't remember if it was Nick dagen Best, maybe that was your guest at the time, but it might be worth uh, mentioning.
0: Yeah. So Nick Dagan-Best actually wrote a whole book about this called uh, Uranus USA. And I interviewed him about that in one of the first episodes of the podcast. I think it was episode 11 titled The Astrology of Uranus in the United States. Um, So people can go back and find that on the podcast website just by going to episodes and scrolling down to episode 11. And that, of course, has interesting implications then for the future that all astrologers immediately then jump to speculating <laughs> and wondering about naturally, which is we're in the early phases of Uranus going through Taurus right now, which means in just a few years' time later in this decade that we just entered into, Uranus will again return back to Gemini. And the question is is if the pattern holds of you know Uranus going back into the Gemini during the Civil War, Uranus returning to Gemini during World War II, will there be some sort of similar repeat of some sort of great conflagration or or war or something when Uranus goes back through Gemini uh, the third time?
1: Yes, let's hope not.
0: Yeah, let's hope not. Um, So far, this decade's not shaping up so well uh, so far, but we'll see how it goes. We're only a few months months into it. (laughs) That's right. All right. All right, so um, back to this. So is there any other things we need to say about the Sibley chart? As we've moved on from the Sibley chart, is there anything else we need to say about the Gemini rising chart? I do need to mention the house placements of this chart, because which, which is relatively easy because it's, it's literally the exact opposite of all of the Sibley chart placements because we have the opposite rising sign. So one thing that would be interesting and notable is that um, Uranus, of course, we've talked about being conjunct the Ascendant, but then Mars would also be in the first house in this chart. So we would be talking about a country that's like Gemini rising with Uranus and Mars in the first house. The Cancer stellium moves down to the second whole sign house with Venus, Jupiter, the Sun, and Mercury there, Uh, Neptune in the fourth in Virgo, Saturn in Libra in the fifth whole sign house, and the Moon is up in Aquarius around 18 degrees. Uh, conjunct the Midheaven in the ninth whole sign house or 10th quadrant house. Um, so that's the difference is literally historic astrologers have historically championed two different charts that are literally the exact opposite from one another. Um, but that can sometimes be kind of tricky comparing them if you were to try to compare each of them just because there can be overlap as a result of those oppositions due to the similarity.
1: That's right. Same polarity uh, applies. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, all right. Is there anything else about the Sibley chart? Just the the last thing is just the oddity of this chart being as popular as it is, because it almost requires, because it's set for two a.m., some sort of weird, um, quasi like conspiracy theory type mm-hmm. explanation in order to work. Because there's no reason the Continental Congress was like meeting during the day. We have relatively good documentation of what hours or what time ranges they were meeting, and setting the exact chart for 215 a.m. would require some sort of weird explanation uh, to come up with a justification for why this would be the singular correct chart, right?
1: That's right. Secret side meeting or agreement or something like that occurring then.
0: Yeah. And I it's like it's been a while since I was into like super into conspiracy theories and reading up on that stuff. But I mean, I think sometimes people will will like speculate or just put out wild speculations that because they were Freemasons, um, they must have been using astrology and therefore they elected this chart or something like that. Um, That argument doesn't work out very well though because it's not a terribly good electional chart if (laughs) if that's your argument, right?
1: (laughs) No right, you you have Mars in the first house, not w- you know with any essential dignity. I think that would be a big no no right there.
0: right. they have made like retrograde Mercury, the ruler of the ascendant um in the second house, which isn't really terribly that useful that's uh, right what what else? We've got the sun like applying to Saturn in a square in like a night chart. I mean, you could maybe like, argue that somebody, if you wanted to have financial prosperity, they put both of the benefics in the second house. And maybe you could argue that, but that's kind of a weak electional astrology thinking, I feel like, nonetheless.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially from you know people who would have been practicing a fairly traditional form of astrology if, if they weren't really practicing it.
0: Yeah, like we would have to go back to lily type rules, if anything, would be in circulation that's during right. this time about a century after the death of lily. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it it just it seems more like a chart where somebody was trying to emphasize Uranus as Luke Broughton did, and so they picked the chart that had Uranus right on the ascendant and said this must be the chart. Um, in the absence of some insider information, I did get an offer once from Robert Zoller to join the Freemasons, but I never took him up on that. So I sometimes regret that because then I can't I can't say you know conclusively the answer to this question if. Perhaps there is some like secret knowledge of this actually being the correct chart, that would be really cool. Right. But um absent that, just from a historical perspective, we probably have to discount this unless some huge discovery comes out at some some point.
1: That's right. So if somebody wants to invite Chris so he can access the secret archives, I think I think he's open to that invitation.
0: Right. I just have to <laughs> admit that I will probably blab about it all over the podcast. <laughs> so I'm probably not a good candidate for that. <laughs> All right. All right, so let's move on to a broader discussion. So those are the two main charts historically, but both of them have historical issues just unto themselves. So let's talk more about some of the time ranges that we do know about that were available on July 4th when the Continental Congress was meeting and what charts those would actually result in hypothetically.
1: That's right. So Gary Lawrenson pointed out to us that uh, the declaration was brought to the floor at 10 a.m. July 4th. But according to John Adams, they didn't start the vote to approve the language as edited until the 11th hour of the morning. So they went through the document and the motion was made sometime between 11 a.m. and noon.
0: Okay. So it looks like the Ascendant, if I'm calculating all of this correctly with solar fire and using the animate chart feature, it looks like the ascendant moves into Libra pretty quickly after eleven a.m. that morning, so that by eleven oh eight a.m., it's firmly in zero degrees of Libra and will stay there for the next couple of hours. So, you said Gary said that they they brought it up for approval and then approved it sometime between eleven, 11 and noon, 11 yeah. And 12. So, so that time range would firmly then probably give some sort of Libra rising chart.
1: Yeah, with again with Saturn and Libra in the in the first house or in the ascendant,
0: right? Um, And then also with the ruler of the ascendant being Venus up in the tenth house, or depending on like what time specifically we're setting it for, and depending on what house system. But at least the Cancer stellium all moves up to the tenth. One of the things that's interesting about this, just in terms of the because this is one of the first times recently as we're researching this that I even looked at this chart. But it's interesting that even in this chart that Saturn-Pluto opposition during 9-11 moves to the third house, ninth house Mm. axis and becomes almost more of like a ninth house problem because it's activating the difficult ninth Mm. house placements of Mars and Uranus um, in this chart. On 9/11, if that was sort of what was going on, or if this was the root chart that those transits were referring back to,
1: that that's actually a really good point, Chris. Um, Yeah, Yeah. you know, and of course we we should probably think back to other major events, you know, that we've seen as a country, right? But but you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's also one of the issues in terms of when astrologers talk, when we note that the Uranus return has coincided with a major war each time. I mean, natally, just the fact that Mars is there in the same sign in Gemini with Uranus uh, means that the the birth chart, no matter what, if we're using an early July or yeah, early July 1776 birth chart, is going to have that that mm-hmm. Mars Uranus co-presence or that wide conjunction, no matter what, which is kind of a you know a problematic or a tense or even like warlike type energy. In and of itself, if it gets activated, so that that in and of itself could be a problem, no matter how prominent or not prominent Uranus is in the chart. In Italy,
1: that's a great point. Absolutely.
0: Sure. Okay. So, um, is there anything uh, else? Onward, that... yeah. Okay. So, so, so Gary said that the Continental Congress that day opened up at 10 a.m. They began. Having the debates about it, and then they finally approved the declaration of independence sometime between eleven and noon
1: that's correct
0: okay, so then at that point at noon, they like broke for lunch
1: mm-hmm. they broke for lunch and then they came back um, I believe in the early afternoon.
0: okay, so at noon, the ascendant's at like twelve libra by one p m the ascendant is at around twenty four libra, and then eventually by It looks like around 130, just after 130, around 140, the ascendant moved into Scorpio.
1: Yep. And I should point out at this point that um, Jefferson's account of the day uh, precludes a time before noon. Um, So he's focused on the afternoon or, um, you know, like late afternoon. So, if you do set it obviously for before noon, you know, we are going against some of the documented evidence from an eyewitness. Um, if you set and it up so, before
0: noon for, for what? Say it again?
1: If you if you set it before noon, um usually we would set it for ten to eleven AM. So this is discussed at some length in a recent book called American Histrology by Ronald W. Howland. Um, and so this is something that's uh treated at length in his book, and it gives a virgo ascendant. but the point I'm making is that uh, taking that that mid morning time would would go against the the written accounts at least of Jefferson's
0: because jefferson says says what
1: Jefferson says that uh it was ratified uh in the late afternoon,
0: okay, so what happened in the morning then they got together and debated it. But they, and before they broke for lunch, what did they do?
1: So before they, so Gary, I think, says that uh, the motion, the motion to approve or motion to ratify was made before 11 and noon.
0: Okay. So they made the motion to ratify before they broke for lunch. So that's the either late Virgo or, or early Libra rising chart. That's right. And then, so you're saying that this guy Ronald Howland in his book American Historiology says that you're saying that some astrologers dispute Jefferson's account mm-hmm, of the debate. Of the
1: debate, right. Because Jefferson is saying that the debate went on in you know through the morning. And so a ratification couldn't have occurred before noon, according to Jefferson.
0: Okay. So our primary sources then are conflicting because right. who Adams is saying that they ratified it between eleven and twelve in the morning, probably. And Jefferson is saying there was further debates that happened after they were, they came back
1: that's right, well, and then there's a third conflict based on John Hancock's recollection of the declaration coming out of committee. Uh, mark Penfield highlights that at two twenty though I don't know if that's a rectified time or you know where where he gets that time exactly
0: yeah, and i don't uh, mark Penfield there were some issues with him in the Hillary Clinton birth time during yes. the something election a few years ago in 2016 that were not very good. So I'm a little nervous about adopting some of his times too strongly based on that. But that seems relevant if we have conflicting historical sources or primary sources then who were there at the time who are reporting different things about when the process was finished or concluded.
1: Exactly. So I think probably it, it would be worthwhile for any astrologers before You know, making their final decision as to which chart is appropriate is to try to look at some of these primary sources and draw their own conclusions as to what they feel is the most plausible.
0: Sure. Um, But at least this is helping us to narrow down some time ranges where we know the Continental Congress got together by like 11 a.m. So by Virgo rising, let's say, and a lot of stuff happened even into Libra rising before they broke for lunch, then they come back and eventually, what happens? They eventually approve the document sometime earlier in the afternoon?
1: Yes, um, that's right.
0: And so at some point, we get to the Scorpio rising chart. Actually, that's let me right. cl- close this and restart just to make sure I have the correct chart in time because sometimes solar fire can get weird when you're animating it for too long. Um, And is this the the Scorpio rising chart? Because that's one that somebody published a book at one point arguing for like a Scorpio rising chart for the United States, and I wasn't sure if that was this, if they're using July fourth, but just with Scorpio rising, or if that was a different date.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure the book you mean, but this was one of the ones that Mark Penfield highlighted. Um, So that okay, so
0: between like two and almost four in the afternoon that day, uh, basically the ascendant was in Scorpio.
1: That's right. And again, it would be hard to elect that, I think, given the ruler of the ascendant being in the 8th house, which is rather inauspicious for the birth of anything that you want to survive.
0: Sure. Um yeah, if, if they were trying to do it deliberately versus just, you know, a group, yeah. group of people getting together and doing whatever whenever it's going to happen, what happened at this point historically in the afternoon? So, at this point, they are Getting ready, and they do eventually send it out to the printer to be actually published, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly correct.
0: Okay. And when they do this, they, there's something about like a five hour time frame where it takes them like five hours to get it typeset before it eventually comes back or something that day, right?
1: Right. And so when it comes back, that's, you know, when they get back their fair copy. That they're all happy with. Uh, that's when the ratification and, and signature process begins.
0: And did it happen that afternoon or that evening then?
1: Yes. So the the predominant amount of, of contemporary evidence from people who were there, including Thomas Jefferson, seemed to support maybe a late afternoon time. Um, although I don't know that we have a specific time when this happened other than it was sometime in the late afternoon which you know we could end up at 4, 5 or perhaps even 6 p.m. depending on what you consider afternoon.
0: Okay, so it looks like we start getting into like a Sagittarius rising chart again then between 4:10 p.m. if it was any time between 4:10 p.m. and like 6:30 it looks like then we've got a Sagittarius rising chart and then eventually which is would then essentially be the same as the sibley chart um and then eventually by it looks like around 6:30 2 p.m., the Ascendant moves into Capricorn for uh, the next couple of hours all the way until about 8.30 p.m., and sunset occurs around this time, around 7.30. So, we're definitely getting later in the evening at this point into the night.
1: That's correct.
0: Okay. So, all of this is just taking the same planetary positions and like switching them around to different houses, and it's moving that stellium of four planets in Cancer. Um, One of the things that's interesting is the Moon stays in the same sign. It stays in Aquarius for the entire day until late that night um, after 9.30 or about, it looks like about 9.52 PM, the Moon switched from Aquarius and moved into Pisces. Um, But otherwise, for the entirety of that day, the Moon is in Aquarius no matter what, and all of the other planetary positions, of course, that day, of course, also stay in the same zodiacal signs. So this really just becomes a matter of what houses are the planets placed in and what is the specific rising sign and degree of the Ascendant and Midheaven in the birth chart of the US. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Well, at the very least, that narrows things down because unless they stayed up until like, I don't know, like 1130 or midnight, it's not going to be like an Aries rising chart. Um, obviously, we have some arguments about whether people taking the Gemini rising chart seriously uh, also late at night, but if you just took those historical accounts into, into consideration like you just explained in terms of when they actually met up to sign the document or published it or got the document back and started distributing it, we're, we're talking about a specific range of hours and, and a relatively small range of rising signs.
1: That's right. So you could at least narrow it down. And it is interesting that even if you, you know, if you go pretty late you can still have the angles that is the MC and the IC in Sagittarius and Ge- uh, Sagittarius and Gemini, right? So those do become important just not as the rising sign.
0: Right, right. Yeah. All right. Um so what happens after that? So they basically accept the document yep. and everything happens on July 4th. Mm-hmm. And, but then there's other charts. There are or subsequent other important charts.
1: Dates. Yes, so there is okay. July eighth, seventeen seventy six, and it's set for noon in Philadelphia. And this chart has Libra rising. What happened then was that the uh, the Declaration of Independence was publicly read out and proclaimed at that time in the in the main square. Um, so this is the official public reading uh, of the Declaration, followed by big celebrations.
0: Okay. So, so yeah. So is, go ahead. So this is when the declaration goes goes public or goes becomes public. public.
1: That's right. That's the big release, and um, the beginning of the celebrations. I think Gary was saying he uses twelve twenty eight p.m. LMT again. I don't know why that specific time, if that's a rectification or if he has other reasons to choose that. But um, I think that's something that he's he's timed.
0: He uses what? What was the time again?
1: At twelve twenty eight p.m. on July eighth. Okay. And so that puts Saturn on the ascendant or close to it.
0: Sure. So the ascendant would be at 19 Libra and uh Saturn would be at 14 Libra and Mercury would be conjunct the degree of the midheaven at 22 Gemini. It's funny that no matter what in this period of er- early July of 1776 that you've got a Mercury retrograde happening no matter what. So that's kind of a funny little thing about the birth birth of the United States if yes. that's the appropriate birth range.
1: Yes, maybe that has something to do with the fact that they had their declaration after the war started and was well underway rather than as a as a first step that later kicked off the war.
0: Right, that's a good point or even the fact later it's kind of ironic then that like American astrologers would later like really publicize the idea of like mercury retrograde being a big deal whereas <laughs> While it was taken into account perhaps in early electional lore, it wasn't given the degree of emphasis that it, it later would in recent times.
1: That's right. The founding fathers made Mercury retrograde happen. It's a meme.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> the first memes. Yeah. Um all right. So is that is that it? Can we is that enough charts or are there more charts after that?
1: And that's all we've got. And I feel like that's certainly plenty. So
0: Okay. So there are different variations. You mentioned somebody um yeah. other charts, like a German work that you'd studied. That... I
1: did, yeah. And so this, I just wanted to mention it. So when I was reading Nick Campion's work, um, he said that the the first book he was aware of uh, that dealt with national charts was Charles Carter's uh, 1951 book called Introduction to Political Astrology. And uh, that might be true in English, but actually national charts were used well before then in other languages. The one that I am aware of personally, and it certainly doesn't mean it is the first one, but it's just one I know, was uh, it's a book called Europas Zukunft, meaning the future of Europe, and it was written in German by a very prominent astrologer of the uh, first half of the 20th century called A.M. Grimm um, and Alfred Max Grimm. This was published in 1925 in Germany. It's a book I have, and it's a really interesting book, very bold. It uses timed national charts for a number of countries, not just Europe, but including the U.S., to make detailed predictions for European and you know, U.S. Um, for countries for the following 50 years. So he literally goes like year by year and he tells you what he thinks will happen. And so the U.S. chart that he gives is set for July fourth, 1776 for noon and with no source. I don't think he gives sources for, I want to say, with any of his um any of his charts. Maybe for the German ones, he explained some of the history, but it could be he just wanted to sidestep some of the confusion around the timing and just used a noon chart. So I yeah, wrote in us- Yeah, go ahead.
0: Usually when astrologers use the noon chart, that's the universal like we don't have a time I don't know. chart. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah okay.
1: Exactly. And I just wanted to mention for people who are interested in that in that source, um, I wrote an article for the Mountain Astrologer about it and a partial translation of the book. Um, it was in the December 2017 issue.
0: Okay, cool. Um, and let's see, other sources, the Book of World Horoscopes uh, is very useful for this because he has a lot of documentation not just about the US chart, but also about other charts around the world for different countries and cities.
1: Exactly. And I think what's probably worth worth mentioning there is that Nick Campion uh, states in his introduction, and I think repeatedly, that in his view, a even a chart that's historically impossible or inaccurate can work, that is, it can be used accurately for prediction or divination. Um, and that would include the Gemini rising chart, which I think he sets for 2.17 a.m., because so many astrologers believe in it, and that alone can make it a valid divinatory tool. So obviously, people can vary on that particular view, but he does he does take that point, and that's how he squares the circle of how could you have it 2.15 or thereabouts chart AM, that seems to work.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's an argument that you could make. There's different arguments that you could make either for or against that. And that's something astrologers have been wrestling with for the past few decades, especially in the aftermath, especially of different arguments, like Jeffrey Cornelius's argument about astrology as divination. And he had an example like that where some scientists used a, a, a random chart in an article, and then he argued that the chart actually perfectly matched what they were using it for. Um, yeah, uh, versus other astrologers might say, no, there is like objective validity to astrology and the true chart in of itself should work. Like I remember Rob Hand, for example, saying, and I don't remember if he was responding to Jeffrey Cornelius directly, but he said he's never had an instance where a chart's been rectified or he rectified a chart and the rectified chart or the true time worked better than the time that had been used previously. Or maybe I'm saying that in the reverse. He always felt that once a true time had come out or become clear that that had always more clearly matched whatever the presumed chart had been up to that Mm. point. So that his argument was that the objective true time was always more valid in every instance that he had seen versus just the presumed chart no matter what level of belief people had in it up to that point. Yeah. Um, and I, I tend to be more on that side as well and thinking that there's some objective validity to astrology or astro- astrology regardless of whether we're aware of it, even if there is also some divinatory component that shows up the most readily in like Horary, for example.
1: I think that's right. I mean, you know, the problem is if you go too far down that line, is why does you know what does any chart matter then, right? As long as you believe in it, any chart could could be used. And I'm not sure that's really what what this is about. But
0: yeah, yeah. well, and that and that becomes an issue also because then Campion, I don't know if Campion still believes astrology is legit, like an, a legitimate objective phenomenon that occurs out there, and so that feeds into why he might think that or the direction that his thinking ended up going in not being a practicing astrologer for several decades, but just doing it as an academic hobby. So we have to be careful as well in terms of adopting some of those views and just understanding the context of where the person Mm -hmm. is coming from in terms of their even belief in astrology as a phenomenon. Um, All right. So where are we at? We've introduced all of the main charts at this point and given people a lot of stuff to work with. Once you actually have a chart though, or or one of the questions is what can you do once you find a chart or what are some of the things that you would apply the chart to in order to test it or see if it's accurate? Obviously, a lot of this ends up focusing on just like we've been doing, looking at the, the birth chart and then trying to look at the house placements and then see how that might symbolically match with or connect with things that have then happened in the history of the country. But there's other cool stuff that you would also do that we've alluded to or mentioned a few times in terms of even just timing techniques like applying transits to the birth chart of the United States, such as for example, that Uranus return we mentioned every 84 years when it comes back to Gemini during the Civil War or World War II um, or even that Saturn-Pluto conjunction that we mentioned or opposition during 9-11. But there's also things like secondary progressions. like I know some astrologers will do secondary progressions to the birth chart of the US. And that can sometimes show interesting things, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, so Dane Rudger uh, did a, a kind of rectification for July Fourth, seventeen seventy-five, and the chart that he, or the time he ended up with, was five thirteen uh, p.m. and fifty-five seconds Eastern Standard Time, which is interesting. I don't know why he would use EST, but I believe that's what he had in the chart. Um, Standard time was not yet a thing back then; it was there were no time zones but you do end up with 13 Sag rising. And he says that the most significant feature was the arc between the Midheaven and Saturn, I believe that's 14 degrees, which corresponds to the period of 12 years and several months separating the declaration from the time the Constitution went into force, March 4th, 1789. And, you know, because he was very focused on on psychological uh, astrology, he cautioned that this chart should not be used for predictions, because its main focus is to actually describe the consciousness of the American people. And he predicted 1972 and 1973 as a change or culmination in the U.S. state of consciousness, based on Pluto's conjunction to the midheaven of the chart that, that he developed. Um, and then previously, you know, this uh, he also looked at wars that were indicated that when there were transits uh, by Pluto to angles of of his chart.
0: Okay. And if he's talking about the declaration there, then maybe... It, are you sure this is not, it's not a typo and it is 1776? You know, maybe it is
1: 1776, on? On? I, I'll need to confirm. So okay. sorry for the confusion. But yeah, no, that that's, must that's be right. it. Yeah.
0: So that just means so Roger probably used like a modified Sibley chart. I which... think
1: he's rectifying Sibley.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that would then make sense of why Sibley's become it's like if you have people like Broughton, Luke Broughton, who was a famous astrologer in the 1800s, and he was using the Gemini rising chart, you have a precedent for why maybe a lot of astrologers were using that up to that point. But then Rudyard was such a prolific author. He has to be one of the most prolific and influential authors of the 20th century, starting in the 1930s and writing books all the way through the 1980s. And then when all of the Pluto and Leo astrologers came into the field in like the 1960s and 70s, they got really into Rudyar. So him writing an article like that probably would have been very persuasive on that generation of astrologers um, from in like the second or the last, the fourth quarter of the 20th century.
1: Yeah, I could see that's how, um, as you say, that that 13 or thereabout Sagittarius chart really enters consciousness if he says it.
0: So sure. yeah. So and that would be so the so even though there's objective issues with the sibley chart because historically like it's set for london and has all sorts of weird stuff going on with it um this a, a sagittarius rising chart certainly was plausible that day f- depending on what you want to focus on because that was one of the times that came up in the in the afternoon basically right
1: exactly that that we have eyewitness accounts of so
0: Okay. And what was the exact degree that Rudyard that used? 13?
1: 13 Sagittarius. Yeah.
0: Okay. So that would so be. There
1: you go. Yeah. Around. And he said 513.55. You could round up to 514. Okay. There you go.
0: There it is. So and it puts the mid-heaven at like 2 Libra. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that would be. That would have to be later. So that would be like after they get the document back, maybe from the printer or something That's like right. that. That's right. That's right. Versus when they earlier in the day when they all voted to they finished like the final changes and everybody votes to accept it and that being the official thing versus when they they officially send it off and everything else. So as with most things, any electional astrologer will tell you and what you run into really quickly with electional astrology is that the problem is that for most important events, it's not like a singular specific moment, but instead it's like a series of important moments during a process of, of you know, starting something so that sometimes you do it, it run into a question of what is the most important moment that you should use, and that's not, not always very clear cut.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Okay. Um, so that being said, you could do things like if, for example, you did use a July 4th chart, most of the planetary positions and the degrees of the planets are going to be the same the entire day. So most of the transits that you could run to that chart would largely be the same in terms of at least to the degrees of those planets. And you could also do things like secondary progressions, which would largely be the same on that day um, no matter what, I think, right?
1: That's right, as long as it's planet to planet and you're not using the angles as as progressed or, or progressing. Yeah. Okay. So there's another, yeah, there's so there's another uh, very extensive rectification that was done fairly recently in two thousand nine. So the pseudonymous author Dr. H, also uh, you know, he he's known as regulars astrology. Uh this one really interested me just as a traditional astrologer. He used the medieval technique of directing through the bounds. And based on key events in US history, he rectified or modified the Sibley chart to arrive at a chronology of the United States that he felt matched the symbolism of the bounds. So as the different planets and as the angles progressed through bounds ruled by different planets, uh, different eras and different trends arose and ended in American history. He wrote a whole book about this called America is Born. And when it came out, I interviewed him and reviewed the book on my blog at griffinastrology.com. So, you know, he arrived at a 26th Sagittarius ascendant. So it's still a July 4th chart but this is somewhat later than Sibley, and it has 26 Sag rising.
0: Okay, so here's the chart, 26 Sag rising and the Midheaven at 18 degrees of Libra? Correct. I think I actually helped him to edit that book back in like 2008-2009. Um, and because I tend to be more skeptical of things like this because I know how um, many different chart options there are, and also how sometimes you can have false positives where something can look correct or you can get timing hits, but it's because another chart that has similar angles could also be getting hit in a slightly different way by the same placements. I never committed to... Um, I don't I don't know if this is a correct chart or anything like that. I will say, however, though, in his favor, in favor of Dr. H, that before the 2008 election, before Obama's birth certificate was published, And his birth time became common knowledge. Doctor H, I was always impressed by Doctor H that he was the only astrologer I knew who had correctly rectified Obama's ascendant uh, to be Aquarius rising. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get the exact degree correct necessarily, if the birth certificate time is correct. But he did get the rising sign correct. And then when the birth certificate actually came out, that was verified. And he was he was like one of the only astrologers I knew who did that. So I always thought that was was pretty impressive. in terms of a track record hit on his part.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things too that can be said for this book, again, you know, rectifications at the end of the day are just hypotheses, right? But um, I think just the fact that he took so many events and trends into account in creating a rectification I think is really good. Because sometimes what we see with any rectification is that the astrologer might just take, you know, five, Events or ten events or fifteen events, you know, like,
0: and- like best best case scenario. I mean, let's be honest. like yeah. Most astrologers rectifications on the chart of the U.S. are like hot takes based on like one placement, like yeah. the the Saturn Pluto thing we mentioned, yeah. or like some other singular thing. Versus, yeah, something like this where he took like tons hundreds of, data, of da- points. data points. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Precisely. So. Mm-hmm. Whether you agree or disagree, I think we can say, at least to my knowledge, this is probably the most rigorous rectification that's been done, at least publicly that I know of. So mm-hmm. that I think that that does speak highly of his process.
0: Sure, definitely. Yeah. Um, cool. And there's tons of other books on this. Like we didn't even collect together all the ones that we possibly could have. I know there's different astrologers that advocate like the Scorpio rising chart and lots of other different variations during the course of the day. Um, like we said earlier, Gary Lorenson prefers the January first chart, I believe, or the July first chart, I believe, and you could probably make a list of hundreds of other different ones that have been advocated by astrologers over the years.
1: Exactly. Do you have a preferred chart, Chris, or, or do you prefer not to uh, not to taint the uh, the discussion with your own? favorite.
0: I mean, I don't at this point I when I got into astrology, I got in through conspiracy theories and like new age literature and the books that I was really into for some reason really heavily advocated the Gemini rising chart and their argument was always that the country somehow um had the stamp of Gemini because it's has great polarities of like great like cold in the north and hot on uh, in the South, and that it has like different twin cities on the like East Coast and west Coast, and that it had this idea of polarities or almost this like sibling factor being a prominent um recurring archetypal theme in the country. And I always thought that that was interesting. I used to think that was much more plausible or like compelling as a narrative or it was an argument for that specific chart. But at this point in time, Like, I don't as much just because of how much of a historical stretch it would have had to have been in order for that to take place at like two o'clock in the morning. And then it would have required some heavy, like, secret society type thing happening at that point. Which, while I can't say that that's completely outside of the realm of possibility, it's probably not necessary to go that far when, you know, we have relatively good documentation of like a group of people getting together and doing this. And often history is less complicated than we we want to make it like often things are much more straightforward.
1: That's right. That's right. Occam's razor.
0: Yeah. 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 So that has left me more with the sense of just not having any idea and being open to different possibilities, keeping vague awareness of different planetary placements where we know that certain signs that the planets are placed in certain signs in early July no matter what, like Uranus and Gemini, so we know what some of the long-term cycles are going to be. Like the Uranus return coming up later in this decade or like the Pluto return that's happening right now since Pluto was at uh, 27 degrees of Capricorn in early July of 1776. So we know it's getting back to that point now as it's getting closer and closer to late Capricorn. Um, But I otherwise don't or haven't settled on a specific chart, although that's partially because I've never tried to research it enough to like firmly come to some conclusion. Do you have a preferred chart?
1: You know, for a long time, I used the, um, I used the, the 26 Sagittarius one proposed by Dr. H, just because I felt like there was some rigor there and some background. But, you know, in my work, I tend to use planetary, like the solar ingresses more lunations, things like that. So I actually don't rely on national charts that heavily. Mm. Certainly ones where there is doubt, like here. Um, I just right. feel that there are other tools that we can use
0: yeah, I think that's really important also for from mundane astrology and stuff that when it is that's a really important lesson. I think it's something we learned a lot in the past few presidential elections, even where if there is uncertainty about the chart that you're using, um, then you're really upping the chances of mistakes happening if you try to base your predictions on that chart because yes. it could not even be the correct chart. You could be working with the wrong chart and therefore come to the wrong conclusions. Um, And so that becomes a lot more dangerous if you put too much emphasis on a singular chart. And so that's always created a um, tension with me between on the one hand, I admire sometimes people who do a ton of research and and pick up these pet projects in astrology where I've seen these different areas where astrologers will pick up a pet project and then try to specialize in that and go on this quest to find the correct chart and astrologers have been doing that for centuries like first with the birth chart for Jesus and astrologers have had entire careers about that or i think like cardan or somebody was like thrown mm-hmm. in jail for that right
1: i believe so yes that's that's a whole another episode actually uh, yeah that's right yeah
0: <laughs> that is one we're going to do um he was thrown in chart for like publishing his rectification of the speculative birth chart for jesus there's been that's other very- astrologers more recently that have made entire careers out of that or or finding the date of the age of Aquarius or or here like finding the birth chart of the US. And on the one hand, I have some degree of respect for people that decide to not just do something in passing, but to seriously try to research any subject and become experts on it and then try to render a verdict. And there's something respectable on that level. But then there's another part of me that also Sometimes I feel like people can become obsessed with trying to find a true singular thing when ultimately something is not completely unknowable, but it's so murky and hard to ever confirm where you're never going to have complete 100% sureness about something that it's a little bit hard to put too much emphasis on something or to build your entire career around it when you're never going to be able to fully validate it in the way that you might like. And that sometimes gives me pause from ever wanting to go like too far in that direction with any one of those projects.
1: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the 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 odds of of a true birth certificate of the American chart, you know, ever coming out is like zero. So you'll never be validated or proven wrong, I guess. So, you know, that's a bonus, but
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's yeah. So it's just it's such a tricky thing or a double-edged sword um, for that. But That was really our goal and that was the way that we wanted to, I think, structure this episode because we were both somewhat on the same page about that and wanted to both give people an overview of, you know, here's the situation, here are a bunch of the different charts that have been used and the reasons why different people have used them. Here's the different ranges that are plausible on certain dates like July 4th that you have to choose from, um, but also know, we don't fully know what the answer is and these are the problems that you're going to run into if you decide to engage with this as a research project. Um, So it's up to, I guess, the individual listener what they want to do with that information or where they want to go from there now that we've just sort of provided this overview and this introduction to the problem. Exactly. Cool. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Then let me glance at my notes and see if there's anything I forgot to mention. We mentioned 9 11, Freemasons, and conspiracy theories, um, both of the outer planets, classical outer planets, being in their exaltations, which is really interesting in 1776. Um, Another side Mm. thing is the inauguration chart has actually stayed fixed for the past several decades, which is an alternate interesting thing that you can focus on. That also ties in with the U.S. chart in somewhat weird ways, um, because we know that the inauguration is always going to take place on a specific date at a specific time in Washington D.C. At this point,
1: yeah, I actually have a comment about the inauguration, and I don't, I don't want this to, to you know, turn into a whole thing. But um, you know, according to the Constitution, um, the the elected person becomes president at midnight, so you can have mm-hmm. your inauguration at any time. But my argument. And that might be my legal background is that you actually become President, whether you have an inauguration or not. Just it's an, it's a legal act. So okay. you know, that's the other reason I, I tend not to rely too much on inauguration charts, but um, interesting, something to think about,
0: yeah, that's a good point. Well, maybe John Quigley didn't need to move like Regly, uh, Reagan's inauguration four minutes. <laughs> I, I think, thought that earlier was later, funny. yeah, and yeah. in light of
1: in light of the fact that he would have become President whenever the inauguration occurred, he would have become President at midnight. Um, it seemed yeah. a little superfluous.
0: Yeah. Well, it, when also even just moving it like four minutes in of itself <laughs> was funny because she didn't couldn't move it that much, but she oh, tried yeah. to do what, what she could. But maybe therein also goes to the conspiracy theorists, for whatever it's worth. Uh, not that I want to promote conspiracy theories, especially lately when there's just so much craziness yeah. being promoted recently out there. But there was an astrologer in the White House for like eight years off and on who did occasionally elect things or try to move dates and times for astrological reasons. And that was something that didn't come out till later and was denied like thoroughly. And even to this day, they're still nebulous about where the the Reagan administration's like the way that they approached it was by blaming his wife by blaming Nancy and say it was Nancy's crazy addiction to pseudoscience and that Reagan was just humoring his wife, which was a total lie, yeah. but that's still in most documented sources like what they'll say to this day. So, um, you know, who who knows how far if that's come come up in other instances and just never became public knowledge? Um, we'll never know. And it's a little pointless to speculate as a result of that, but um, who's to say?
1: That's right. And by the way, you had an episode about Joan Quigley too. I don't don't remember what number it was, but it's been a few years. So people interested in that, that's a whole another rabbit hole they can can pursue.
0: Yeah, that was episode 68. That was probably one of my favorite episodes in the podcast history because I researched it for a while around that time and it ended up coming out relatively well as a specific narrative and just everything we know about... What happened? Um, that's right. It's with... a
1: it's a memorable one. I, I would recommend it to people who haven't heard it.
0: Definitely. Thank you. All mm-hmm. right. Um, well, uh, I think that's it for this episode. So, what have you been? It's been a few months. You did the William Lilly episode with me last fall, which is a major episode. What have you been working on since then, or what do you have coming up?
1: Yeah. So a few things. Um, so I'm still publishing my Magical Elections uh, ebook every month, and it's basically a compilation of electional uh, dates and times, but with the magical purpose in mind. And so it contains not just, you know, when when the moment of, of making a talisman or having a magical ritual is, but also it's the moment, you know, it has background information for what's appropriate planetary magic, what are some of the things that you might need, you know, it, it aims to kind of help people get into astrological magic as, as practiced um, in, in medieval and, and Renaissance era, um, you know, Europe and, and the Middle East.
0: Uh, yeah that's yeah. a great accompany. and it meant for anybody that was interested in the episode I did with uh, Christopher Warnock a few months ago on The Picatrix because you're taking some of those magical elections and rules straight out of of documents or at least taking um inspiration from mm-hmm. things like the Picatrix and then finding good elections each month for making talismans and other things like that
1: exactly. and it's it's pretty different, I would say than um than I think what you what you guys do with the with the auspicious elections because With magical elections, just to kind of distinguish it, you know, you have other tools that don't always apply, right? You're looking at things like decans and fixed stars and, you know, things like that that don't usually fall into like electing for a a moment or a time. Um, So that's just more to tell people what that's like. And the other thing I've been working on is I've started making videos on my YouTube channel and I have a Patreon. So if you just go to patreon.com slash Nina Griffin... You can um, support my work. And these are videos on astrology and magic and astrological magic. So, um, hopefully, you, know, you can find them on YouTube, youtube.com slash Nina Griffin and um, you know, get, get educated. And I talk about current transits and you know, astrology, magic, all of the above.
0: Definitely. Um, I love that you're doing more videos now. And you did a great video uh, not too long ago with Ryan Butler on fixed stars. It mm-hmm. was really good. Yeah, thank you. Um, Cool. So people can check that out. And what's your main website URL?
1: It's ninagriffin.com.
0: Got it. And then you're also active on Twitter and Instagram, right?
1: That's right. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And if you just type in Nina Griffin, you should be able to find me.
0: Brilliant. All right. Um, Really quickly, like your mention of the magical elections, that reminded me of another historical anecdote about the guy that you had, the, when he died, he was found with the talisman who had fi- founded. Um, Joseph Smith, yeah, yeah, Joseph Smith, like the Jupiter was,
1: talisman, yeah.
0: He he was killed by a mob, and they found a Jupiter talisman that was from like straight from Agrippa, one of the earlier magical works, right?
1: That's right. I forget was it Agrippa or Key of Solomon? I, I don't recall which it was, but it's a it's like a seal, and so the image is something that occurs quite frequently, and you know, in particular, grimoire. So you know, did he make it? Did he buy it? We don't really know. But somebody was a was at least a consumer of, of planetary magic if not a practitioner.
0: Sure. And he died in uh, 1844. He was born in 1805. So this is like a few decades after The founding of the U.S. So again, it just circles around that question, that tension I have. Maybe it's my tension as a Scorpio between skepticism (laughs) versus, you know, conspiracy. Yeah, yeah. What what was the secret like history of the United States, and when are magical or occult or divinatory things? What roles have those played, if any, in U.S. history at different points? And we see, you know, pieces of that occasionally with things like Reagan and having an astrologer in the White House, or. Joseph Smith founding a religion and having a, a magical a Jupiter talisman or what have you on him at the time. Um, but in some instances, we'll, we'll never know. So uh, it's, it's almost too bad on some level because I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff we'll never find out.
1: That's right. I mean, a lot of this would not have been documented in the official documents that you know come down to us, right? So it's right. a secret history.
0: Jefferson doesn't have like a page in his library. He says, "Well, at two o'clock in the morning, we all got together and <laughs>
1: the secret cabal convened." Yes, <laughs> right.
0: And exactly at two ten in the morning, when Gemini was rising and Uranus, which wasn't discovered yet, was on the ascendant, that was when we actually signed but they the Declaration.
1: Because clearly, they they were you know Masons uh, and they had that that's, information. That's good thinking. Uh-huh. Okay,
0: <laughs> you're right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this episode. Like I said, at the top of this, you put in pretty much all of the research into this episode, so I really appreciate it. And people should thank you for uh, this overview just because, uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen like a singular take on the birth chart of the United States like this. So I appreciate you putting it together, and I think it'll be helpful going forward, not just for future research into this topic if people want to get into it, but also just as we're talking about world events these days and all the crazy stuff that's going on and trying to um, get some larger meaning of it when looking to things even like national charts of the United States and, and what the future of the country looks like um, as we move forward.
1: That's right. Just in time for the US election, folks. So.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, um, that will be fun. That will, we'll have to follow up on that. Let's see what happens over the next few months. Um cool. All right. Well, people should check out your website at ninagriffin.com, mm-hmm. correct? That's right. All right.
1: Yeah, cool. thank you, Chris. It's been such a pleasure.
0: Yeah, I look forward to having you again on again soon, hopefully for that either the Jerome Cardan episode or maybe to talk about fixed stars or some other topics in the, in the future.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Chris.
0: Cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to all the patrons who supported this episode and uh, that's it. So, we'll see you again next time. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, and Irina Tudor, as well as the Astrogold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes, while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com/slash astrologypodcast.